This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I will now invite uh, Mason uh, to read today's passage for us on screen. Good morning. I think you all can hear me. Right, today's passage is taken from the book of Esther, two chapters, chapters 3 and 4. I will be reading from NIV. Please turn to your Bibles or follow the verses which are projected on the screen. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the twelfth month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatta, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. 
These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Chapter 3. As chapter 4, sorry. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told them everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back to, and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink 
for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried all of Esther's instructions. This is God's word. Listen for reading today's passage of two chapters. And can I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we will be looking at your Bible uh, frequently. Now again, it's always a joy to be with God's people. And it, it, it always warms my heart when I see Pokim, Sengyun, and um, some of the brothers and sisters, Tek Yen, um, because they remind me that there is a journey to walk and uh, that we will persevere on as well. I love to hear stories of my grandmother when she recalls the things of the past when she was alive, including how she would make sure my dad always had a dollar coin in his pocket when he was a young boy in boarding school. You know that one dollar coin or the dollar coin was not meant for his spending? It was meant for him to touch it when he is insecure because dad and mom are not around and there's no handphones back then. It was for emergency, it was assurance when dad and mom are not around for such a time, for such a time as this. I love to hear her say the story because she would describe it and I could imagine my dad sheepishly listening to it on the other side of the couch. Now, two weeks ago, we were looking around our church building just across the road and we were inspecting the fire hydrants, fire extinguishers, and we knew it was crucial to ensure they were well-maintained and accessible for emergency for such a time as this, if it does happen. And if you have bought insurance before, you'll know that I've heard stories of how certain people's lives were saved and the family was uh, protected because they bought insurance for such a time as this. And dear brothers, sisters, and friends, you know, our faith is more than just for times of crisis, but it's never less than that. We need faith to live each day, but we need it even more so when we are at crossroads, when we are at crisis. We need our faith for such a time as this. So when we step forward to share the gospel, when we face a, a brunt from others and we need to stand firm, when we have to give up the last breath that we are left with for such a time like this, we need to make sure that our faith is there. As we come to Esther chapter 3 and 4, we shall come into a three-stage journey. First of all, God's people, they will be confronted with a very, very dark hatred. And number two, God's people were facing a very dark future. And finally, God's chosen one would have to exercise a very daring faith. So this is the three-stage journey we'll be taking today from the book of Esther, chapter 3 to chapter 4. Now, can I invite you to pray with me and ask God to help us? On this journey. Father, all of us have to take journeys. There are times we will face very dark troubles. There are days where we face dark futures. And Father, we pray in times like this, you give us the daring faith 
In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, if you have your book of Esther open in chapter 3, there's this very ominous, threatening music going on right at chapter 3, verse 1. Take a look at it with me. We read that after this event, referring to chapter 1 and 2, including the king's rescue by Mordecai the Jew, after this event, the king decided to honor one man above all the others. But if you're reading the story, the surprising thing is that he is not honoring Mordecai, but Haman the Agagite. Now, for a Jewish reader of chapter 3, verse 1, he or she hears immediately the ominous music, the dark storm is already brewing. For the Agagite, here refers to a supposed descendant of a king called Agag, the late king of the Amalekites. He was the sworn enemy of the Jews. Now, we were told last week that Mordecai the Benjamite was a Jew related to King Saul. And now the king promoted Haman the Agagite, who is an Amalekite, related to King Agag. Now, the Jews and the Agagites, they were ancient enemies. There were persistent wars in their history. In fact, their hatred didn't begin in the time of King Saul and King Agag. It went all the way back to the days of Moses. For when Moses, he first led the Israelites out of Egypt past the Red Sea, the first people that confronted the people of God and became their enemies were the Amalekites. There were persistent war in the history and the Amalekites were the first enemies of the people of Israel. Earlier, we have read it together in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 to 16. The famous battle of Rahidim, you know, where Moses raised up that, that staff of God. You know, at that time, when Moses raises his staff in the air from morning to night, while Yeshua, also known as Joshua in Hebrew, or Jesus in Greek, fought and defeated their ancient enemies, the Amalekites. Now, after the battle of Rahidim, Moses built an altar to the Lord and ended the first ancient war with these words from Exodus 17, verse 16, which we read. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. So trouble is brewing when we hear King Xerxes have honored Haman above all the other nobles. In fact, all the royal officials at the king's gate were commanded to kneel and pay honor to Haman. But we read on that Mordecai refused. Now here's an interesting observation if you read the passage, that when Mordecai refused, all the other officials noticed that he didn't kneel before Haman, except Haman himself. Haman was too occupied with his own glory that he didn't notice that Mordecai refused to bow. He was just walking around with his nose up the air. No, perhaps Mordecai was a very junior official. Perhaps, Mordecai, uh, perhaps Haman was so engrossed in himself, perhaps both. But he didn't notice. He was just so immersed in his own greatness. Now, if you read carefully, the royal officials, they were not malicious 
people. They went and perhaps they even remember Mordecai rescued the king because it was written down. And so they tried day after day and tried to persuade Mordecai, hey, just kneel and give honor to Haman. But they failed. Now what really caused Mordecai's refusal, we are unsure except he mentions to the others that I am a Jew. That was all we know. He said, I am a Jew. So eventually, having tried their best, the officials had no other options but they informed Mordecai, uh, Haman of Mordecai's refusal, also mentioning that well, he is a Jew. So as a result, Haman, he was enraged. Now imagine if I told you I've got a mole right in my nose, which I don't have, but if I tell you again, or tell you once, every time you talk to me, you'll be looking at, at my nose to try to spot if there's a, there's a mole, right? So here it is. Haman hasn't noticed Mordecai for all this time, but now he can't get his eyes off Mordecai because everyone bows, but because one Mordecai refused to, he was enraged. He is not happy with everyone bowing down, but one man refused to. And it was a very egoistic pride. And when he learned that Mordecai is a Jew, that ancient hatred of the Amalekite came alive. And he wants not only Mordecai dead, he wanted all the Jews as well. So this so-called people of God, he thinks, shall meet their end. What the ancient Amalekites or King Agag failed to do, you know what? Haman is going to do it. He pondered hard with his newfound power, how he would have displayed his power to the empire, and here comes the chance. He has the opportunity. Soon the world will fear Haman. Now, interestingly, Haman, who sees himself as powerful, has this weakness. He still wanted to pay an auspicious day to kill the Jews. So on the first month of Nisan, the 12th year of Xerxes, the pearl, that is, the Lord, was cast. So Haman used an object. It's kind of like the dice that you use in a backboard game, but the ancient one. And he cast the pearl, and it landed on the 12th month. So he decided the auspicious day is going to be 11 months from now. So he cast it on the first month, and it's going to be the 12th month where death and genocide is happening. So the day was decided by casting a lot the next step was to conceive or convince the king of this wicked plan. So look with me in verse 8. So Haman, who is now the second in command, he went to King Xerxes with this genuine concern. Look at verse 8. He said to the king, There was a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, Haman is a very scheming and wicked man. He doesn't mention who were these certain people, and his words are crafted with deception, intentionally portraying these people to be bad before the king. He said that these people, that is the Jews, they keep themselves separate. Well, probably it is true that he kept, they kept themselves separate uh, because we've seen it in the famous Jews of the past like Daniel and their friends where they kept their identity as God's people while living in a foreign land. But what 
Haman means by separate is ambiguous here. Totally ambiguous. Then he said the Jews, they had different customs. Well, the question is, what's the implication of different customs? When you are a great empire with all kinds of people, every people have their own customs that are different from others. What is the difference and what is the threat? Again, it's kept ambiguous. And finally, he claims this to seal the deal. He claims that the Jews do not obey the king's law. Now, it's quite untrue, isn't it, when you read this? Because just a few verses before in Esther 2, Mordecai was a Jew loyal to King Xerxes, and it was Mordecai that Xerxes is still alive. And the Jews in Babylonian or the Persian times, we read the other Old Testament, they were often mentioned as exemplary citizens in these foreign lands, except when the demand is to worship another god. But most likely here, Haman was just furious with Mordecai not obeying the king's law to bow before him. And so he says, Now Haman was a wicked man, but what was shocking too was that the king never bothered to question Haman's words. And so those politically scheming words of Haman came in verse 9. Look at it. It says, If it pleases the king... Let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to king's administrators for the royal treasury. So he used the same formula from the previous chapter. If it pleases the king that Mamukan used to depose Queen Vashti, Haman now asks a decree for the genocide of the Jews to be issued. Total obliteration of the Jews, not just in Susa, but all 127 provinces, including all the Jews in Jerusalem. And before the king can raise his eyebrow, Haman adds that, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to compensate any financial losses that you might have, dear king. You know, 10,000 talents, I don't even know how to count that kind of money. It's like 375 tons of silver, so I checked the commentaries, and they said that is probably worth two-thirds of the annual tax income of the whole Persian Empire. He's a rich man, Haman. He's a very, very rich man. So persuasive was Haman that without question, the king just handed his ring, or his signet uh, ring to Haman, and Haman was made the acting king of Persia. So to seal the fate of the Jews, the king said, do to the people as you please, Haman, as you please. And that was exactly what Haman was hoping for, to have that kind of power and to totally eliminate the Jews. Now, dear friends, the ancient Malachites hated and opposed the Lord and his people from the time of Moses to the time of Haman. It was true back then, it continues to be true in our days today. In fact, Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15 verse 18. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. No, brothers and sisters, if we live like the world, Jesus says, it will not hate us. 
But if we set ourselves apart for the Lord, if we live with different customs, that is like our morals, our way of living, if we choose to follow Jesus seriously, we will be hated along the way by the ancient enemies. If we refuse to bow before what is morally wrong, if we become a sore thumb, whether it's in school or at work or even at playdates for moms, if we refuse to laugh at gossip, it makes those who are joking and laughing look bad at a water cooler. And very soon you'll be out of their inner circles and pile of suicide as well. And there is a dark hatred here for the Jews. There is a dark hatred for those who follow Jesus in this world. So as we continue in Esther 3, we start to witness a very dark future unfolding for Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. So come with me to verse 13. And so verse 13 tells us, On the 13th day of the first month, of the, royal secret- the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote Haman's orders and the king's name and sealed to the, the edict with the king's ring. Now, here's an irony set in motion that uh, the Jews spotted right away that Singaporeans, we might not have noticed. But let me bring it to us. The 13th day of Nisan also happens to be the eve of the Passover. It's the day where the Jews prepare to celebrate God's rescue of them from Egypt in the days of Moses. It was a reminder that death was at their doorstep, but instead of entering, death passes over. So when a Jew, a Jewish reader read verse 12, while the Jews all over were preparing for the Passover meal, Haman, the Agagite, was preparing the edict to verse 13, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, whether young or old, children, women or children, on a single day. And the people were allowed to plunder all their goods so that there will be no evidence left in history that the Jews even exist. Now, Haman's edict reminds me of this movie franchise called The Perch. I don't know if anyone has watched The Perch. It was some years back. The movie was set in a world that is seemingly kind of normal America. Everyone just lived their normal life except for one day called The Perch for 12 hours, the people or the world, or the, the whole uh, America, they decriminalized any wrong action. So for 12 hours, people were allowed to rob and steal and do anything, including murder, and it would be all right. I watched one of the movies many, many years ago. I don't recommend it. It's pretty gory. But here the edict is given like that. That in 12 months' time, on the 13th of the 12 months, everyone, whether you're a soldier, you're a farmer, you're a kind teacher, whether you are kind of a Sunday school teacher or kindergarten helper, on that day, on that day, you are encouraged to kill and plunder any Jew you like. Any Jew you like. Any parents you don't like, any bosses you hate. It was an edict that will either break the hearts or you corrupt the hearts of the Persian Empire. So on this eve of the Passover, while God's people were preparing to celebrate, the edict 
was written. The planned genocide was written down and sealed by the king. So verse 15, as the couriers went out, the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And then we read this really unnerving detachment of emotions from the mastermind. As evening approached, the letters were being sent out to all the 127 provinces. Haman, he came to the palace with some really good wine and he said to the king, Boss, whatever you command, I've done it. It's time to chill. The king smiled. They both went in for a two-man banquet of good wine. And meanwhile, the whole city was stirred in the turmoil. And you can imagine families being torn apart as the edict was read. People starting to separate themselves from their Jewish colleague, their friends, their neighbors, those who dislike their Jewish boss, smiled to themselves and looked at the chair. The Jews were booked at conference. Speakers were all cancelled out. Contracts were not renewed. People were fired. Even nice people would be afraid to defend a Jewish friend. And of course, the Jews at that night were filled with fear and confusion and distrust the way they would have been in the days of Exodus. The announcement for the purge preparation has, has begun and the Persian Holocaust will happen in one day. The whole capital was bewildered. As the news upheaval the whole city, Spotlight now turns back to the important character of Mordecai, whom Haman first conceived his dark hatred. So come to me, come with me to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. This is what happened. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Now, there was great mourning as the edict was read in every provinces. But the focus now turns to Mordecai. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went to the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He ran only as far as the king's gate, but was not allowed to enter. In all probability, he has already been retrenched and his chair was taken by someone else in the office. You can imagine the picture the next morning that would just loud mourning throughout the citadel. All the Jews were grieving, many in sackcloth. Well, everyone was grieving except for one person. One who had hidden her identity. The one not in sackcloth, but in beautiful gowns in the palace. The one we call Queen Esther. Now, when she heard what was told, Esther was visibly upset. But not because of the edict, but rather because Mordecai was walking around in just sackcloths. So she tried to kind of soften the situation and feel better, sending him nice palace clothes, but Mordecai refused. And so we have the first confrontation here between Mordecai and Esther. Now, Mordecai sent a eunuch by name Hatak to find out what was troubling Mordecai, and verse 7 reads this. Look at verse 7 with me of chapter 4. Mordecai told him everything that had happened. Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And Mordecai told Hatak, the eunuch, to instruct Esther 
to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai is practically saying this. He says it's time to reveal your identity, Esther. It is time to tell the king you're a Jew and beg for your people. Save your people, Esther. That's basically what he's saying. However, when the words of Mordecai came to Esther, she was unwilling. And for the first time, she refused Mordecai's request. Now, she was in this safe place in the king's palace. Nobody's disturbing her. Why give up everything? Why give up the security? Perhaps the king, well, perhaps he might change his mind. There's still 11 months. Well, perhaps, perhaps some Jew will figure out something to do and save them. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Does not Mordecai not know the risk if I go to the king? And so she replied to Mordecai in verse 11. Look at verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. Now, what Esther is saying to Mordecai in this long conversation is basically this. Look, Mordecai, look. I may, I may look comfortable in the palace, but, but I'm not that comfortable, all right? Okay? The king's favor is not with me anymore. For, for 30 days, he didn't call me in. Like, the, the king don't sleep alone. He hasn't called me for 30 days. He's got his buddy, uh, Haman, drinking with him. He has not called me for 30 days. You know what? If I go to the king, Mordecai, I'll be dead before you. You get it, Mordecai? No, Esther was unwilling to stick her head out for a mere chance of deliverance for the Jews when she has security of her own. She was not ready to be Vashti the second. But at this point, everything looks really dark for God's people. The enemy's hatred was dark as death. The people's future was dark like a cave with no emergency exits. Or the, one that, the only one that's available, stones were all piled up and there's no way out. The genocide was sealed. The people were bewildered. The queen was unwilling to help. What was going to happen to God's people? But again... As you're a reader, you would think, didn't God promise His people that they would flourish once more after the 70 years of exile? Didn't the Lord prophesy through Jeremiah, the prophet decades ago, that the Lord would bring His people back to Jerusalem after the exile? Didn't the Lord promise in, in Jeremiah 29, He said that I'll have plans to prosper them, plan not to harm them, plan to give them hope and future and to bring them back from captivity, gathering them from all nations and places and they will be home. Didn't God promise to Jeremiah and the first batch has gone home? Is that a joke? Will God's people really be saved? Here we have Haman, the Agagite, the ancient Amalekites. They will come to stop the Lord's plan from gathering His people back to the promised land. Will God's promise be annihilated by this dark enemy? And so comes this one last exchange between Mordecai and Esther. 
a conversation that will require faith, a very daring faith for such a time as this. So come to the last portion with me. As I read to you verse 12. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Now as you look at Mordecai's reply in verses 13 to 14, he's going to give a three-point sermon, okay, in a very short way. I want to point to you his three-point sermon. He's going to first give Esther a warning. Verse 13, look at it. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. This is Mordecai's warning to Esther. You will not be saved just by keeping quiet. Now, Esther already knew how the previous queen were deposed by the words of the noble Mamukan. Mordecai says, you will not escape that greatest of all nobles, Haman, when he discovered you are a Jew. So verse, the first point of his sermon was a warning for Esther. And the second point, he turns to 14 verse 8. There's a certainty for the Jews. There's no certainty for you. There's a certainty for the Jews. Read with me verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jew, for the Jew will arise from another place. But you and your, family, your father's family will perish. That's a very harsh word from someone who is her foster father because she was an orphan. But she say, he says that to her. Mordecai announced to Esther that death may come near, but death will pass over the Jews. God will send deliverance from anywhere he wishes. The Jews will be saved, but Esther, you will not if you keep silence of your Jewishness to save your own skin. Because if you deny your faith by keeping silent, you will be denying your own life. Mordecai gave her a warning Proclaim a death, denying certainty of God's rescue with or without Esther. But he ends not with just a warning and a rejection, but he ends with a call to action for Esther in verse 14, the last portion. He says this, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is reminding Esther, perhaps it was not by poor fortune that Vashti was deposed or good fortune for you that you were made queen. Perhaps it was for this, for such a time as this to save God's people. Now there was a man in Genesis, his name was Joseph, you have known him. He was a nobody. He was a, a Jewish or they don't call Jews yet. He was a slave of his father. Uh, he, he was a son of his father Israel. He, he was a slave in Egypt. But God brought him there, put him in prison, but he became the second most important person in the whole of Egypt. He was like a father to, to, to Pharaoh. For such a time as this, that when famine came, his father Israel or Jacob and all his brothers were saved from death. And he said to his brothers, you many for evil, but God many for good. And here Mordecai is telling Esther, Perhaps it was not your good fortune that you became queen for the enjoyment, but for a time like this, that God has called you. So in this darkest moment, the death 
denying faith of Mordecai caused him to proclaim the good news of God's rescue and Esther's need to respond. Now when these words of Mordecai reached Esther, now her heart was stirred. She turned, she repented, and she responded this time round with a death defined faith that trusts in the Lord. Look, look with me to verse 15 and 16. Now, Queen Esther, who previously wanted to save only her own skin, she now turned around. She, she took on her role as a Jew and she called for a three-day fast, both for herself and her attendants and all the Jews in Susa. Now, the author had intentionally excluded the reason for the fast, but if you have been a careful Jewish reader and you have been following how all the dates and everything were recorded for you to know the flow of the book, you will not fail to hear the drum roll when she says fasting. Because if you read from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah or Joel or Ezra and all the other Old Testament prophets, Fasting, it was a time to be humbled before the Lord and to return to the Lord with all their hearts and to cry out to the Lord that you alone can save us and you can. So Esther says, I'm going to fast for three days. Three days. But as I'll die then. But you fast for three days as well. After the fast, Esther said she would go to the king even though it is against the law and she declares those famous words of verse 16. And if I perish, I perish. She was willing to perish for the sake of saving God's people. She would give up her crown to be identified with her people. She was willing to give up her life for theirs. That change of moment when the good news was proclaimed and God's intention was made known, her death divine faith turned her from a queen to a savior. We're going to hear more of it in the coming weeks, how she will do that, but Queen Esther will become their savior, and she right now casts a shadow of the greatest savior who is to come. Now, dear friend, as we close this chapter of Esther, we already know as readers of the Bible in the later history, that the greater Savior did come and he bore that perfect, death-defying faith. Now, even though he bore the very nature of God, Philippians tells us he made himself the very nature of man. He gave up his heavenly status to be identified with his earthly people. He exchanged that heavenly glory for that shameful crown of thorns on the cross by a death-defying faith. He was willing to perish even death on the cross so that by his death, our death will pass over. And we know his name. His name is Yeshua. His name was Jesus the Christ. He would defeat the ancient enemies of God's people so that we may see life and we will continue our journey and enter the promised land of God. Because of Jesus, Philippians 2.12 reminds all of God's people that we must live out our faith and our salvation with fear and trembling for a time like this. For it is God who works in us and He has come to save a people for Himself. So as Christians, as we face 
challenges, and the Bible tells us we will face challenges. We must remember that we have been given a death, denying a death, defying good news of Jesus, and when we trust Him, He gives us a faith for such a time as this, whether we are, wherever you are at this moment, and the time like this when we have to cross those crossroads. No, whether it's our daily struggles, whatever you are facing, whether it's fierce oppositions, or even the oncoming death, it comes. Death comes all the time. At such a time like this, we can stand firm and exercise our faith, knowing that this time around we will not perish, for our Savior, King Jesus, Yeshua, perished for us for three days so that we will not face death, but we will receive eternal life. For those of us who are seeking, you're just seeking, you're hearing, you're thinking. Esther points us to the one who bears that good news, that though we must all face our sins and God's judgment and our own death, there is a Savior who has given up his life so that we can have his. The question is, will we look to him for this rescue? So let's close this time. May the Lord help us as we read the book of Esther for two more weeks to see that God will keep His promise to save and we are called to put our faith in the Savior God who has sent Him to save us. Would you pray with me? For such a time like this, Father, that You have given us the book of Esther, for such a time like this that Christ came so that we may live for such a time like this. The Spirit was given to us so that in times when we open up your word that we may understand times of weakness that your Spirit will strengthen us. For such a time like this, God, you have given us faith that though we are weak, yet Christ is strong. For such a time like this, whatever time that each of us are facing, that you remind us that we shall stand as your people that we shall trust in your promise and we will finish our journey because Christ has come and he will bring us home. Give us the faith for every time that we face and for those brothers and sisters who are struggling, we pray God that you strengthen our faith in such time as this. For those who have not become Christians or are thinking about it, we pray God at this time, at the time like this, God, that your spirit will work in our hearts that we will hear your good news, your gospel. You have given us the warning we need that we all will die, but you have given us certainty that all of us who trust in Christ will be saved and you have given us a hope. So Father, help us to respond to you so that we may receive Christ as our King and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. View of time, uh, we will not be able to have the breakout session of questions, but it will still be flashed uh, on screen uh, later on after the service. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.